quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here. We got Bob the Bowhunter Borland. And joining us today on this intro is Emery yep. from Byland Podcast. Hey, how's it going, guys? Excellent. Uh, great to have you back on. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. How, how's the Pacific Northwest up there treating you? Oh, gosh, it's freaking raining, man. It is raining hard. Yeah, I'm, I'm plumb tired of this rain. I'm ready well, for summer. Yeah, and then like go outside. I swear, it's a, one moment it's like you know nice and t-shirt weather almost, and then you go out the next morning and it's like, gosh, it's like January again. Yeah, we've been getting uh, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from uh, the podcast we had you on. Right on. I think the biggest takeaway uh, for guys was, you know, when we talked about um, packing our fears mm. into the mountains, and I think that really. Uh, you know, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but uh, it, well, it, it resonates with people. Yeah, I it mean, really it, resonates. It, That's the word I'm looking for. When you start looking people. at it. Yeah, when you start looking at it as like these things that I'm bringing might be bits and pieces of my fears of what could go wrong. You're like, oh, OK. And you can start diagnosing like, do you really need that thing? Or is that just something you're packing for uh, because you're worried about something? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're all guilty of thinking it's a, a zombie apocalypse and we yep. got to pack four of everything into the woods with us or we're not going to make it out alive. Yep. That's cool, man. That's good to hear that uh, people are liking it. Yeah. Um, and uh, this week we've got a, uh, a really awesome guy coming on, Larry Yen. Okay. Um, he is from Santa Cruz, California. And uh, what do you think, Bob? Larry's yeah, a stud, huh? He is awesome. He's the was he the three time world that, longbow champion? Yep. And it, what did he say? He he just dabbles in that a little bit. <laughs> Hunting's yeah. his thing. He just dab, dabbles in the yeah. target he just, archery. <laughs> he just ha, he just happened to win uh, uh, the world championship three times by getting ready for hunting camp. Basically, he made it That's sound hilarious. like yeah, he's a super humble guy. Um, but was really cool in this episode. He really gets into, uh, stripping it down Yeah, and, uh, you know, less is more and increasing your experience by, uh, taking less, even to the point where he's been doing some mule deer hunts where he's not even taking food with him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Very interesting guy. And it, that's pretty bare bones. Yeah. One of my favorite so far for sure. I mean, just. Super cool guy. I think um, it makes you think of a few things. You know, he's, he talks about hunting a little bit with uh, Doug Borland, who we've also had on. And I think mm-hmm. most guys in the traditional community look up to him. And, you know, just a few of those things. You know, he's talking about just having a wind checker with him. And, you know, mm-hmm. and Doug just saying, you know, like someday you won't need that. You know, you're, yeah, you'll have that sense of, what the wind's doing at all time because you're paying attention to it. You know, you kind of, 
Yeah, it sounds like I, I, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, when you start stripping things down, you have no long, you I never thought about it like this, but your attention span, you, you don't have anything to pay attention to, right? Except for the environment. So if you have these little, these little doodads on you, wind checker, range finder, whatever it might be, a GPS, you know, these things, and you're always checking them, you're not, you're looking down at your phone or you're looking at the wind and you're not, you're not, you're not in the environment. You're exactly. you're separated from it mentally. So that would, I would imagine that if he's going out there with his minimal gear, he's far more involved in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think huh. that's the that's interesting. Definitely. I think that's kind of the experience he's looking for. And even in target archery, he really just started leaning towards, Mm-hmm. the longbow and the wood arrows because it was so easy to uh get involved in a, a lot of different you know techie things even with the trad bow and competing yeah. and so he just really stripped that down and went for the most basic uh class through the wood arrow and longbow class nice cool man so that's awesome I'll yeah have to look so, forward to it yeah we get into self bows and um, you know, just really stripping it down. So yeah, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. And cool. we, uh, Bob got together, uh, everybody that put in to win, uh, your bear Montana longbow. Nice. Let's do it. And yeah. he did, uh, he had his daughter, uh, stick her hand in the box and draw a name. And so we've got a, we've got a name. Got a winner. Sweet. We got, uh, and thanks everybody for leaving reviews. We had a lot of reviews on, on, uh, Emery's on by land yep. and ours and super cool to get the good feedback and hopefully you guys are being somewhat truthful because they were all yeah. really good <laughs> i know james always says leave a five-star review but <laughs> but uh but you don't have to leave a five-star review but so we do appreciate it even if it's somewhat truthful for sure yeah mm-hmm. definitely we i mean we totally appreciate our listeners that we wouldn't be doing it without you guys and we hope um this uh bow gets uh like what emory wants it to uh, get out into the woods and get some action and so that's what we're we're hoping that's what uh, happens with this bow and uh, i know our last giveaway um we we had andy on and he put it all into a and an app and it was pretty cool but we're we're pretty low tech around here so (laughs) yeah i I wrote them all down on a piece of paper i cut them out with scissors put them in my hat and my daughter drew the name so uh, in the spirit of the longbow, since uh, that's what our boy Larry in this week, that's all he's shot for the last uh, 20 years or whatever. So we got JL Phillips 0828 Outdoors. He left us an awesome review. Uh, I think he's making the switch, so this will be perfect. He'll have a right awesome Bear Montana longbow that Emery was gracious enough to uh, share the love out there. So get a hold of us, and uh, we'll get that thing shipped over. That's yeah, so cool. can you repeat that, Bob? What, what this, what this uh, J, is? JL Phillips, 0828 Outdoors. Awesome. So, yeah, if you hear this, get a, send us an email, send us a private message on Instagram, and we will uh, get this bow out to you. Uh, so, it sounds like he's making the switch. Huh? He's new to traditional archery. Yep. Nice. Yeah, his, well, his his, bow- uh, I can read his review. It said, You guys have the best podcast out there. Y'all have motivated motivated me to make the switch to traditional keep up the great work so thanks man we appreciate it perfect so that that sounds like the bow's going to the to the right home sweet looking forward to getting it out awesome well if you guys uh, haven't already 
Check out uh, Emery at Byland Podcast. He's got a blog page also. Um, he's doing really awesome things for the backpack world, and he's a hunter. So he really does a good job bridging the gap between hunting and the backpack world. Um, check him out on Instagram, and d- don't forget to uh, <clears throat> you know listen to what he puts out weekly. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate that. Cool. Well, we look forward to having you on again, and yeah, uh, I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Trag Quest podcast, Larry Yen. How are you doing this morning, Larry? I'm doing good, thanks. Yeah, we're uh, excited to have you on. We've kind of been talking for some time and finally found a time where we can get together. Yeah, it's good to finally connect with you guys. I, I know my schedule's been pretty busy, um, but yeah, we've got some time today to visit. Yeah, and you are... Uh, are you a native to California? I am. Born and raised. Born and raised California. And you're in the Santa Cruz area, is that correct? That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Right that's on awesome. the coast. Awesome. So you're just uh my uh distant neighbor. Awesome. So are you and you are in Oregon or? Yeah, oh. we're in we're in Oregon. I'm on the coast and uh Bob's over in the valley. Okay. Yeah. So he's kind of in the head of the, or in the um, foothills of the Cascades, and I'm right on the coast. So, yeah, you are uh, a, yeah, it is a th- thick rain rainforest for sure. Um, so you are uh, also a three-time IFAA World Longbow Champion. Tell, tell us what that means. Um, well, every two years the. International Field Archery Association has a world championships. And um, the neat thing about their organization is that it truly is international. They, they ho- host um, venues all over the world. So, um, you know, whether it's in North America or in Europe or in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, be that New Zealand, Australia, or um, that area, it's, it's a neat way to get out and compete and, and kind of see how archery looks in other parts of the world. I think that's what makes it special. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great, great organization and a great venue to, to, you know, bring archery and organized archery, um, all over the the world. Well, that's awesome. And you were um, featured in Masters of the Barebow, Volume 3. Um, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about how your competitive archery, um, you know, helped you as a bow hunter. Because I believe, first and foremost, uh, bow hunting is your passion. Is that correct? That is right. I... As a fledgling um, bow hunter, um, you know, I certainly enjoy getting out into the wilderness, um, but it was very clear that I needed to improve my archery skills to become a better shot. So I decided to search out, you know, that knowledge or, or to learn my fundamentals um, with 
target archery. So I joined the local archery club and, and met some other archers and um, just started shooting more and really started trying to learn more about, you know, becoming a better shot. And um, I think a lot of us just are naturally, you know, good shots or, or, you know, decent shots. But what target archery allowed me to do was kind of open up the shot and learn more about it, learn the different aspects of, of shooting and, and kind of demystified it for me, you know, as far as, okay, if you can do this, this, and this, then you're going to have a decent shot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You talk a lot about visualization. Does that visualization in your shot process um, transfer into uh, hunting situations? Um, it, it does. I, You know, one of the basic fundamentals is learning all the different steps in a shot, you know, whether it's stance, um, how you take hold of the bowstring and how you draw, um, you know, what you're seeing or not seeing, uh, when you, when you come to full draw and then the release and, you know, we kind of learn archery and, and steps and when we're, you know, getting into target archery, but, when you're actually shooting the shot, it, I think those steps can sometimes get in the way or you're just thinking too much about your shot and that can kind of screw things up. So what, when I talk about visualizing, I, I have like two or three images that I can just kind of visualize or that move me through my shot so I can, you know, touch on those points without having to think about every step. So it just facilitates my you know, proper shot execution. Okay. That makes sense. Um, would you just say you describe yourself as a guy that shoots instinctively or, um, you know, gap or somewhere in between? No, I feel like I'm a combination of a few different things. I, I certainly, um, shoot gap and I'm aware of the arrow. Um, but I think there's an instinctive sense that takes over. So the, the seeing the arrow and seeing a gap kind of gets me in the ballpark. Like I, you know, I'm in that target zone or in that aiming zone where, you know, I know my arrow is going to go to the spot that I'm directing it. But there's a little bit of that instinctive float in there that you kind of fine tune and in your subconscious knows, you know, where to line everything up and then you shoot the shot. So it's, it's a little of both, but I think if you had to classify me, I, I do aim. Okay. So we're not, uh, we're definitely not target shooters per se. I mean, we shoot some three D's and, um, that type of thing. And I, you know, we definitely put our time in with the bows, but at the, you know, our, our main focus is, is bow hunting. And I know that is yours also. Um, wh- wh- where did bow hunting begin for you? And wh- you know, what does that look like, uh, f- for you? Yeah, I, I started bow hunting in the eighties and, 
um, my cousins were bow hunters, so they took me out for, you know, and, and introduced me to to bow hunting. Um, I still remember when I went up to my cousin, he, he pretty much taught me how to hunt and fish when I was a kid. And um, I asked him if I could go bow hunting with him. And he said, well, yeah, you can, but you've got to learn how to shoot a bow first. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. So you know, we spent a couple months, and, you know, I went out and bought a bow like his, um, which happened to be a compound. I I knew that I kind of had this idea that there were other bows out there, but, you know, um, just from the movies and doing some reading and, you know, throughout the years, but, you know, that that was a bow, um, and that's what everyone around me was shooting. So I started shooting um, with a compound my first three years of hunting and just loved it. I just thought it was the neatest thing to get out there. Um, I was a backpacker before that, so, you know, that to be out in the wilderness with your camping gear and, you know, going after something was, was really neat stuff. Um, but there just felt like there was something else, you know, that just shooting the bow was, was a bunch of fun too. So, um, so I got more into just trying to learn, you know, how to become a better shot and, um, you know, and to be able to just put that shot where, right where I wanted to. So at what point did you find traditional archery? Yeah, that's an interesting story. I, I was actually shooting on the, my side yard in my house and I don't know what happened, but I must have had a poor release and I just totally mangled my arrow rest. So I was trying to bend it back when I wasn't having too much success. Um, and my neighbor walked by and he said, you know, what you doing? And I showed him what was going on. And he said, you know, I, I don't know how to help you there, but I do have a bow if you want to borrow it. And so my bow was unshootable and I said, sure. So he walked back to his house and came back with this, beautiful white pro medalist, you know, um, recurve that was, um, this beautiful rosewood. And he said, yeah, just shoot this all you want. So, um, we strung it up and, and I started shooting and I thought, man, this is it. This is, this is what's always been calling out to me. And, um, so that, that year, let's see, I went to a flea market and, found an old bow at the flea market. It was a um, Hoyt pro hunter. And um, that following deer season, I showed up to deer camp with, with a recurve and everyone just looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, that season I shot my first buck with a, with a recurve. And um, before that, when I'd taken my first buck with a compound, I, I don't know when I got that deer, you know, I felt really great about, you know, finally being able to make, make me, you know, with this, with this bow, this compound, but, um, but I questioned it. I just felt like it was overkill. Like I, I felt like it was too much that there was, there was something else out there that, um, was just a better weapon to have. And, um, when I, got a hold of a recurve, I, that, you know, that was it. 
I felt like it challenged me more. I felt like I was more connected to the arrow that, you know, when I let go of the string, it wasn't like this almost explosion and um, kind of a disconnect with where did that arrow go? Um, When I shot a recurve, I just felt more connected to that arrow that um, all my intentions and, and hard work were, you know, focused right into that arrow and, and it was heading down range wherever it might fall. So that was kind of my first, you know, delve into traditional archery. And, and I haven't looked back since. It's just been, you know, a, a great ride. How how has your uh, equipment changed uh, over the years? And, you know, what are you shooting uh, then and now? I know you dabble in self-bows and whatnot. Can you, you know, speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it, it was probably when I joined... Um, our local club here in Santa Cruz, I, I met another archer and he only shot self bows and, um, he invited me up to his place and, um, it it was really cool. He, you know, it's just this little A-frame cabin up in the mountains. Um, and I didn't know a a lot about self bows back then, but I was really interested and I loved you know, just the look, that that raw and um, very organic look of the self bow, and he he um, pulled up a couple floorboards out of his his floor in his living room, and he reached down to his you know crawl space underneath his cabin, and he pulled out these beautiful U billets that he had picked up from Earl Ulrich up in Oregon, and you know they were seasoned and and um, cured and he said you know here's a billet that I've got and you know you're welcome to make a U-bill out of it and um, so that day we you know we spent just splitting off a um, stave um, and then fishtail splicing you know two sisters um, together and you know just starting to make a U-bow there. And um, that really opened my eyes because before that I was shooting, you know, a modern recurve, a three-piece recurve, and which was great. I, I loved it, but it that gave me a real understanding, you know, about tillering and balancing limbs, you know, bringing them in line, you know, rather than just screwing an Allen um, screw with an Allen wrench to, to adjust your tiller, you know, you just would shave off some more wood to, to create that tune. And um, I'm not saying one thing's right or wrong, but what it did was just kind of just bring me more to a simpler element there to, to kind of, you know, make it more tangible in a raw sense, you know, rather than, um, a mechanical sense, and, and that was really neat. Um, but what I found was that the the U bows or the self bows were really challenging to shoot. A lot more shock, a lot more hand shock, a lot more critical of the release. You know, and and where I could shoot tight groups with my recurve, um, I found that the long bow was really challenging. And I actually sat. Even though I made my first U bow, you know, back in '88, um, 
I, I set aside because it was just so challenging to shoot and, and I was still, you know, trying to perfect my form with my recurve. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't till like the mid nineties that I started shooting longbow again. And what are you, what are you shooting today as far as bows and arrows and broadheads and whatnot? I, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of moved from recurve to longbow to self bows. I enjoy shooting them all. Um, so typically preseason, you know, before I start getting ready to head out to hunt, um, I'll just kind of look at my bow rack and see what, what bow kind of speaks to me in a, in a way. I mean, with what I feel like shooting and, um, and usually I'll grab a couple bows and just start shooting them. And, um, so last year I shot a Osage bamboo, um, bow that, that a friend made for me, Jamie Miller in Ohio. It made this, this Osage bamboo bow for me and just a great shooting bow. Um, and I hunted with that. Uh, I, I prefer cedar arrows. Um, I started way back when, um, I started competing in longbow. It was interesting because they required that you use wood arrows and, and that really irritated me at first because, you know, I could buy a set of aluminums or, or carbons that, and put them together and they were all perfectly matched, but to get a matched set of wood arrows was really challenging. And, um, I kind of resented that they required wood arrows. I just thought it was, um, foolish, I guess, in a sense. Um, but I really wanted to compete in longbow. So I decided I'd take on the challenge and, and that was really a skill in itself was, you know, just being able to craft a good set of wood arrows. Um, and I embrace that now, you know, to, to have that skill. Um, so that's, that's my preference of shooting right now is, is longbows and, and cedar arrows. I, I really like Zwicky, um, Eskimos. I've, I kind of started hunting with Zwickies and, um, I've also hunted with, you know, the Magnus two blade and, and the rib techs and they've all worked really well for me. Um, the, with broadheads, it's, I, I like them if I can sharpen them. So if I'm, <laughs> if I can get them sharp, then that's the, my broadhead, you know, and, 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 um, so that's, that's kind of where I am gear wise. So you're speaking Bob's language. He yeah. loves himself some Zawikis. I'm kind of the same yeah. way. Any, if I can sharpen it, I'm not the world's greatest sharpener. I'm learning, but, um, it's kind of an art. So when you went, you know, you said, the recurve to the longbow and even the self bow is just that much harder to shoot. Can you maybe, I mean, I'm sure a lot of practice it is, was it the form, you know, your form that helped you the most or cause it sounds like you kind of took that as an extra challenge and that's why you maybe started to go and compete in the longbows. And now it sounds like that's kind of what you shoot. Maybe you could kind of, cause I've had kind of the same issues. Like I'm always, it's probably cause I have a horrible release, but, when I go to the longbow, it's, it can be, I can have great days and then I have horrible days and it's like, man, I just don't have that consistency. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I, I really felt like I was, you know, 
when I first learned to shoot the recurve, that was it. Like I wasn't really even interested in longbow and I had tried longbows, you know, when I shot friends, longbows or, you know, people's bows at, at competitions and I didn't like it. You know, they, it was more jarring and, and like you said, it's, it's a lot more critical of your form. So if you have a, a mediocre release with a recurve, um, I think the recurves are more forgiving. So you, you know, you, you might just be a little off the bullseye, um, but you, you'll probably still hit the target, let's say. But if you shoot that same shot with a long bow and definitely with a self bow, you're, you're lucky if you hit the bail, you know, or even <laughs> exactly. came close. I mean, you just got to be that much better. Um, but I guess what drew me to the long bow, and this is, I, kind of a schism between target archery and hunting because um, what I found in target archery was that the recurve was <clears throat> the recurve class was becoming more um, more technology driven you know with fancier arrow rests um, magnetic type of flippers and um, super light carbon shafts you know, a lot of the Europeans were shooting really light carbon shafts and, um, and then they were also string walking and some with some classes, you know, you could put a clicker on your bow. I can understand all those rules and, and kind of see where they're going, but I just felt like it was going in a direction that I didn't want to follow. So I looked at the longbow class and, and that appealed to me more, even though, I wasn't sure if I wanted to take on the challenge of the longbow. At least they were headed in that direction where it was, it was a, a one piece um, longbow, you know, where the, and the wood arrows required feather fletch. And I felt like that's kind of why I got into traditional archery was to keep it simpler rather than to make it more complex. So um, that was my initial thrust into to longbows, and and I really started to embrace that challenge, you know. And, and it, I'll tell you, the first longbow I got, and I committed to it that you know I'm going to learn how to shoot this bow. It, I I had to hide my recurve. I just stick it up in the <laughs> attic, and so I wouldn't grab it because I was thinking, man, I cannot my groups are a lot bigger and, you know, this thing is so hard to shoot, but, you know, it took me probably a month or two to, to start figuring it out. And, and it was almost like I, I was learning to shoot and become in, in sync, in sync with the longbow. Um, and now where I'm at, I can shoot any bow, whether it be, you know, my recurve longbow or self bow, but I just need to spend some time with it and kind of just learn how it shoots and how I shoot with that bow, you know? So now when um, you, when you shoot a laminated uh, bow or are you shooting a, a reflex deflex? Do you shoot any of the, you know, the straight limb hill style, you know, when you're going laminated? Right. I, and I shoot both. I shoot, you know, the hybrid type longbows. And then I also shoot the, the straight limbed, um, powered heel style 
those as well. Because um, I know you read when you I know, first, there's a lot of stuff that oh, says that those hill style, you know, the they're more forgiving, and and I have one, and I just don't. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I they definitely. I, they definitely feel different, and I think they're quieter. They're much more quiet, which I really like. Yeah, they, you do. They launch an arrow differently too. That yeah. my my hybrid or my my reflex deflex bows feel a lot like a recurve, and right. um, and that's according to design too. But my my hill bows, my hill style bows, kind of they almost kind of lob the arrow out like my self bows do. And I like that. I, you know, I kind of like that, that feeling of how it shoots. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I do think that they're a little more critical, um, and that they definitely require a little bit more, um, you know, the cleaner shot. Let's say. My my experience with them, Larry, is um, I've got a hill style uh, bow from Alan Boyce right now that I'm playing with, and inside of 15 yards i feel like i acquire my sight picture ultra fast and i feel like it just like i just it points well i just get onto target really quick and when i'm i'm not having to hold for so long and i feel like the accuracy is there it's just and like you said it's the quiet really i'm really drawn to how quiet the bow shoots but for some reason as soon as i get out of that 15 yard range and and step into 20, 25, 30, boy, it seems like it just completely falls apart. Yeah, yeah. I I do think that it is more challenging to shoot, um, and especially at, at distance. I, I'm not sure what that is. You know, I'm not sure why that is. That, you know, we can be more accurate with them um, in close, but they are more challenging, you know, once you start, getting out, you know, um, you know, part of that's probably effective range, but I think it's also just the way it casts an arrow. Sure. You know, it's just kind of a different trajectory. You'd, you'd spoke about, uh, having, um, problems with, uh, I, I, I relate to your switching to the wood arrow thing. I have a lot of friends that were doing it and I kind of drug my feet on it for some time. Um, and I, I made the switch uh, one year ago. And when I did, I was amazed at uh, all of these fears I had uh, wrapped up in wood arrows. Just They were myths. They just didn't exist. And I was lucky because my friends over at Sherwood Shafts make such a superior product and they match them for you and they tail taper them for you and they... Um, you know, they're perfectly spined. And, and so I, I suppose I hear a lot of like horror stories with guys trying wood arrows and maybe they, you know, obviously aren't having the, um, to get, getting to start with such a, uh, quality product. Um, so, you know, maybe speak more to that, uh, experience. Cause for me, switching to the wood arrow has been just a pleasure. They shoot so well. They were able to tune so well. Um, they're quieter, which I hold a lot of merit in quiet. Um, and, and their durability is outstanding. Yeah, that's, that is so true. I think 
we're, we live in good times, you know, that traditional archery is alive and well. And, and I think there are, are craftsmen out there that can offer us, you know, a good set of arrows. And so we're not scratching our head because, you know, one arrow's 50 grains heavier or, you know, the spine is, you know, 25 pounds different or something like that to get a good match set of shafts. And then, you know, to be able to craft those and put a finish and, and fletch and, you know, attach a point to, um, you know, to have a match set is, is just a good thing. You know, it's, why wouldn't you? Um, and that, when I first started shooting, that wasn't really available. There were different manufacturers, but I, you know, I would buy them in like 100, 200 arrow lots. And then I would right. weigh each shaft and, and then kind of match them myself both. And then I bought a spine tester and, and I would, you know, spine test them all. And, um, so I basically, I wouldn't, I would never buy a dozen shafts. I would, I would buy, you know, at least a hundred and, and find arrow sets. And so I, I, I would just go through them all and, you know, I might make a set of 16 because I found 16 shafts that were very similar. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's important, you know, to have a match set and, but to speak back to, you know, that all of those, those fears or concerns that, you know, woods inferior or, are just too difficult. I, I agree with you. You know, once you jump into it, it's, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, I can do this. You know, this, this is actually pretty darn cool. Um, and I, I think another thing that the, the wood arrow gives us is, is good weight. I, I talk to my buddies that shoot carbon and they're always trying to figure out how to make their arrow heavier. You know, do I have to put weed whip line in there or, or some weight tubes, or I think some people put copper wire in them, or or even sand. But um, but with a good a good wood shaft, you know, you can shoot a good heavy arrow. I think we all want to have you know a, a heavy arrow that's going to go downrange and and um, deliver a, a, a sharp broadhead, you know, to the target. Right. Yeah, I think the late the latest craze is the high FOC, and so these guys, um, you know, and I was in that um, same arena of putting a three hundred grain broadhead, four hundred grain broadhead on a two hundred fifty grain shaft, and getting a heavy arrow that was that was all weighted forward, and that seems to be the latest rage, but it. And I know that the Dr. Ashby studies have a lot of merit, um, especially on water buffalo. And so I think that that was kind of my scare was to like give up this FOC and to try this, um, you know, primitive arrow, if you will. But like you said, you know, I'm shooting a 630 grain Doug fur shaft, um, you know, total arrow weight with my broadhead and uh, four fletch uh, feathers and knock and. It, it it goes right through animals. It's uh, yeah, not, not a problem. Yeah, yeah. There is definitely a lot of information out there, and it's challenging to sift through it all. I mean, sometimes I'll have a 
you know, meet some guy at the range and he'll ask me a pretty complicated question. And, and it's, it's a bit confusing, but I think it's what you got to do is just find something that works for you. And yeah, once you get a good setup, you know, an arrow that works, I'd say, go with it, you know, and don't, don't overthink it. You know, do I need this or do I need that? Or, you know, is this right or wrong? There's just some good basic um, <clears throat> concepts, you know, to follow, you know, a good heavy arrow. But um, I put more value on a sharp broadhead and a well-placed shot. You know, those are, you know, still what it boils down to. Yeah, dead's dead. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of that, Larry, I know when you're doing your the target stuff, you're shooting – a pretty low weight, probably. Most guys shooting the what forties or something. I don't know if there's a minimum on your competition, but do you roll that same weight over into your hunting weight bows or or what? Yeah, I I don't. Um, and just as a as little sidebar, there's you know there's a common belief in archery that you know you're either a target archer or you're a hunter. And that they really don't mix that well. Um, and I've felt that schism before where, you know, I've even looked in the mirror and asked myself, geez, am I a target archer? And am I, <laughs> am I a, a hunter? You know, and, and it always kind of kind of resonates through me that I'm a hunter. I, um, you know, kind of um, labeled myself as a, is a hunter that dabbles in target archery, you know, that's really where I, you know, feel my loyalties lie, but, um, just dabbles and wins the world but, championships yeah. a few times. <laughs> I just, um, that's not so bad. Happen to, you know, have a little bit of luck there, but, um, uh, but to get back to your, your question, when I first started shooting target archery in the longbow class, everyone was shooting heavy bows. They're all shooting hunting weight bows. I mean, I don't think there was anything at the first world championships. I think every archer there was shooting, um, you know, 50 pounds plus, you know, wow. and, and the average weight was probably 55 pounds. Um, I showed up with this 42 pound longbow, um, and it was pretty controversial. Um, the Australians probably struggled the most with that bow that I showed up with because, you know, this, this Aussie walked up to me and said, mate, that's not a long bow. That's a recurve. If you would have brought that bow to Australia, you know, we would have had you shooting with the recurves. Um, but it, with the international rules, I was shooting a long bow and, you know, certainly the U S we considered them long bows because the string went from, knock to knock without laying on the limb. Um, but it, when I won that first championships, that same Australian archer who actually was the defending world champion, he, he said, Larry, you're going to change um, the face of target archery in, in the longbow class because we're all shooting heavy bows and you show up with this 40 pound, you know, longbow, this stick and, I don't know if he called it a long bow, actually, but he, you know, <laughs> we, we sh I showed up with a 40 pound bow. He goes, um, it's, people are going to start shooting lighter bows. And I think it did 
start happening. You know, people started shooting lighter weight. And the whole reason I even went to a lighter weight was because every day we're shooting 112 arrows. We're shooting um, 28 targets and four arrows at each each target. And the, you know, a 50-pound-plus bow is a great bow to shoot, you know, all around, both hunting and target. Um, but after you've shot, you know, that many arrows, you're pretty fatigued at the end, or at least that last, you know, um, 12 targets or, you know, the last four targets, let's say, you're kind of worn out with a heavier bow. You know, your fingers are starting to feel sore and your back muscles aren't working quite as well. So I found that 40 pounds was kind of my magic number for competition because I could shoot it all day long. And, you know, whether I was shooting my first arrow or my last arrow, I was still shooting it pretty much the same without a lot of fatigue. So um, in answer to your question, I, I'll compete with lighter bows um, in that 40-pound range, whereas when I go out and hunt, I'm hunting with um, heavier gear. You know, the, the adage of shoot as heavy of a bow as you can handle, I think, rings true. Uh, but that's a good question right there is, you know, what's, what is a bow that you can handle? You know, is it a bow that you can come to full draw and shoot a shot? Or is it a bow that you can come to full draw and hold it for 10 seconds without shaking like a leaf? So, you know, there's different um, standards or different, you know, qualifications there as far as shoot as heavy a bow as you can handle. But I'll typically, you know, for mule deer here in California – or in most states, I'll typically show up with a 52 to 54 pound bow, um, and maybe a little heavier for for elk, um, for hunting bigger bigger game. Um, but yeah, I, my target bows and my um, hunting bows typically are different different weights. Well, that's a that's a great segue for. Uh, for us, um, when you mentioned um, hunting mule deer in California. I know that um, we'd spoke about you've been going on a couple interesting hunting trips, uh, minimalist hunting trips, if you will. Um, right. And, yeah, and the, I, me and Bob find that you know pretty intriguing. And um, tell us uh, a little bit about how that got started and how those adventures uh, have been going. Yeah, I you know one of my more memorable trips. Um, was hunting elk in Colorado and um, and we came we went in with like 55 or 60 pound packs and um, and had to climb some major elevation and I really felt it on my knees so I said you know let's not do this again and um, so I started looking into more ultralight gear or at least go light type gear and um, I started doing it in California where the, the um, weather patterns are more forgiving. You know, like when you're, we're, when we're hunting in August, which is our mule deer season up in the Sierra Nevada, um, the, the weather is, is relatively forgiving. I mean, you might get rained on or, or even snowed on, but chances are it's, it's pretty moderate weather, you know, where you're, um, hunting in like 60 to 70 degree weather and at night it might 
drop down to, you know, 40 or the, the mid thirties, but typically it's, it's pretty forgiving. Um, so anyways, we, we started going with, in with ultralight gear. And one of the, the recommendations is that you pack all your gear that you want to bring and then you unpack it and you look at it and you look for duplicity or, you know, things that are redundant in your gear and, and then you make a choice because you, you don't bring in two, you know, two sets of rain gear or, um, you know, two of this or two of that, it, which is, which is kind of a standard for us sometimes is to have a little bit of a safety net there. Um, but you just bring in to go light or to go ultralight, you, you just bring in, you know, what you need and you kind of leave behind what you don't need. And there's always those what ifs, you know, like, yeah, I can pretty much go through this hunting trip um, with this gear, but what if this happens, you know, then, then I need this gear, you know, I need this, this tarp and this poncho or, you know, um, but I, what I started looking at was, okay, get rid of all the duplicate, duplicate items, um, so I just bring in, you know, one water purification thing, not, not doubles of, you know, or backups. And, um, and also I was also looking at gear that I would bring in, but rarely touch. Like, you know, I, I'd bring in stuff where, um, where I wouldn't even use it the whole time I was out or, or I'd bring out, I'd bring get pack out food that I brought in. Like I brought in too much food, um, and and food's really a heavy thing. And you know, just looking at um, simple things like clothing, I um, I started you know weighing out my gear, and man, I couldn't believe that my hunting pants were like two pounds or something. So I started looking for lighter lighter gear. Um, I really could appreciate scent control. So a lot of times I'd bring in extra gear just so I could have a fresh change. Um, but I started, I replaced that with like synthetics that, so I could bring in one pair of pants, but just wash them or, you know, so, and they were quick drying. Um, I think my first set of pants, I was hunting in Alaska and I washed them. And I think it took seven days, you know, for it to dry <laughs> out because, you know, they're just so soaked with water. But you know, I've got these new, you know, Sitka gear pants and I can wash them and, you know, within hours they're just damp and I can put them back on and they're dry. So, um, yeah, we, we just started lightening up our gear and James, I think what you're talking about is just recently, like in the last couple of years, we've actually been leaving gear behind. So we'll pick a few things in our, in our, um, essentials and say, well, what would happen if we left our lighter and our matches behind, which kind of sh should raise a lot of concern with most, with most outdoorsmen. I mean, you don't leave fire behind. I mean, that's just not smart. Um, but what we wanted to do is it wasn't so much, you know, we, our intention wasn't just to make the hunt harder or more dangerous um, my, my intention was to learn more about where we were going and what 
it had to offer. Um, I was walking through our outdoor store up at, you know, REI in the Bay area and you can pretty much bring everything you want or need with you, you know, to basically make it like living room comfortable. You know, you can pack in a chair and a, a lounge and pillows and ovens and whatever. So I thought it was kind of just getting too far out there. Like we were trying to insulate ourselves from the outdoors rather than embrace the outdoors and, and take advantage of what the outdoors offer. Um, but then also to increase our skills and our senses um, that we bring, you know, when we get, get out into the wilderness. So yeah, the um, one of our last backpacking trips in, we left behind matches and a lighter, but we did bring in a flint and steel. And um, we also didn't bring any food in. Um, yeah, that's the big one right there. I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, we just we left the food. That's that's yeah, the scary one. Yeah, we left one. the food out, which weighs a ton. Um, and actually, before we, and I have to admit that because my buddy, my hunting buddy, is a lot smarter than I am. I mean, I would have gone in there with no food, but he said, you know, Larry, we don't want to totally suffer and if we bonk out it's not going to be any fun i mean we're just going to sit at camp with no energy and just look at each other and that's not cool so let's bring in some like a couple energy bars just in case we need to you know have some type of energy if we're just totally a failure at hunting and gathering um (laughs) so we brought in a couple cliff bars just for just so we weren't totally stupid when they found us dead. You know, they go, oh, well, they brought in some cliff bars. Um, but my intention was just to see what that area that we loved hunting in, you know, what it had to offer. I mean, there were plenty of berries to eat. There was, you know, some edible um, greens, you know, near the creeks. Um, and then we had our longbows. I mean, we could shoot squirrels and quail and you know, if we were lucky, maybe a deer or a bear, you know, or something to get meat. Um, I also brought in a Tenkara rod, which is just a real simple fly rod. Um, so I figured that, you know, I could definitely catch trout in the stream. You know, that's, that's kind of a given. So that's how we went in. And, um, and then our fire, we did start our fires with flint and steel but we also did fire by friction so we gathered you know tinder on our way in and um and a a drill you know and uh and a um little board that we could you know create a coal with and um the hearth board um and that was really interesting because you know whereas before if we wanted to cook something you know, you just grab your lighter and, and you've got fire within minutes. But what I found was really interesting was starting fire with, um, by friction or even with a, with a steel, it takes time. So, you know, if you want to get, if you want, want to be cooking at, at five, you better start making your fire around, you know, four or, or even <laughs> three, you know, to kind of just plan for, any failures or, um, but what it did, and, and I think that was my intention too, was it brought out our skills and our senses. And, um, you know, we weren't just 
looking for deer and just thinking about, you know, how to hunt better and how to, how to shoot a deer. But we were, you know, if I saw some tinder on the ground, you know, I'd grab it. If I found a better um, bow drill, you know, I'd, I'd stop and, and cut off a piece of, um, of mulberry, um, you know, shoots or, or whatever. If a squirrel popped up, you know, I'd grab my small game arrow and, and, you know, take a shot. It just, it, in, it increased our awareness and it intensified our whole outing because it was all geared towards, um, you know, survival in a sense, rather than, than just, you know, a mule deer hunt. It, it sounds that, like that it, it really, it really forced you to embrace woodsmanship and to increase your woodsmanship, which I find, you know, really fascinating for sure. And exactly. it seems to be a, it, it, a lost art, um, you know, amongst our younger generation. And so I, that's why I kind of, why I, we wanted to dive into that a little bit. I mean, you look at the Larry Yen three-time IFFA world longbow champion, um, you know, and you're like, yeah, that guy can shoot a target. But what I find so interesting is you, you seek this primitive way. Uh, and instead of moving forward, you're moving backwards to find yourself in the wilderness and to enhance uh, your experience through woodsmanship um, and and a skill set. It's it's really fascinating. Yeah, and I don't I don't even know if woodsmanship's the right word. I mean that for me that's like you're talking about connecting to you know like your surroundings and and you know one thing I know we had um, Emery on you know by land and he did the Pacific Crest Trail last year and I mean I love backpacking and and all that stuff but it's like sounds like you're just on a race to get through there you know and that's what I like about hunting mm-hmm. so much is, is you can spend two weeks in one drainage, you know, and when you're, when you're hunting, it's like, you're actually becoming part of, part of nature and then leaving the food behind. And like, like that's, that's doing it right there. I mean, you're, like you said, you're, you're paying attention to everything. That's, that's awesome. I've, I've thought about doing it. The Cascades where I live, there's not many animals left anymore, but uh, it'd be the perfect place to do it because there's so much. I got a book a couple of years ago on all the, you know, edible plants and all that around here. And there's mushrooms. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff that you could eat. I think you could totally do it uh, around when, here for sure. When, when I'm hunting in my rain jungle that I live in, uh, I've got a paper bag and a plastic bag, and I mean, even when there's bulls bugling, if I run past some some chanterelles or I spot some lobster mushrooms or uh, you know uh, some kind of uh, miner's lettuce, or if I see something edible, I'm stopping and uh, I'm gathering and I'm getting it into my paper bag or into my plastic bag, and I like I want that stuff for later. Um, it's, yeah, it's par- part part of the experience for sure. I, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I if I if I'll if I walk by a bolete or like a little patch of chanterelles, I'll definitely stop and yeah. gather them and you know listen to that where that bull's bugling or moving. But right. I'm you know definitely bagging those mushrooms because you know that's a reward in itself. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I think you know I was just reading 
uh, a book actually is about fly fishing and, and um, he was talking about skills and senses, you know, that we, that we bring out into the water. Um, and, you know, th- this, he was actually talking about this one guide that he had and he just seemed to have um, an extra sense, you know, to where the fish were or, or where they, they might be. Um, but I feel like a parallel also well, when we're hunting, um, you know, certainly we, we develop skills just to get through life and in, in our city life, you know, whether it's just being able to stop at a stop sign or, um, or, you know, making good decisions at work and, and, you know, being the best you can there. But when we get into the wild, it's, it's a different set of skills and a different set of senses. And, and sometimes I feel like we're not allowing those to be expressed or we're not honing those skills because we're, we're bringing in, you know, either technology or, or just luxury items that kind of insulate us from that. So, you know, I'm certainly not recommending that everyone go out there and backpack or no one probably would, you know, and not bring food. That's just wacky, but, but it, <laughs> I don't know, man, I'm kind of just I'm thinking about it. I'm getting my longbow. You got me all fired up. I got to shoot a longbow this year and just leave all the food behind. I love it. I don't know if I'm going to take a flint though. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to cheat on the bow and I'm going to, I'm going to bring my torch and that way I know the one thing I do have is fire if I need it. That's like you said, that's a hard one for me to leave behind. It's like, I always feel like if I have fire, I can, I'll live. So yeah, and Bob, yeah. you're not a big food guy anyway, but for no. me, that would just be. <laughs> I, man, like I guess I does. I, well, that's why like, when you talk to Larry, I got gravity to your shots. Yeah, I got so fired up because I'm like, man, I have totally, like, I've been thinking about that the last few years. I got that book. I, you know, me and my wife, we go out, we go on hikes, and and you learn about, you know, I'm my dad's from Texas, and you know, we've been he's been bow hunting forever, but he's not you know, like a woodsman. He didn't grow up around here. We're not fifth generation. He always told us, stay, don't eat any of the plants, kids, you idiots. You you know, you'll die or whatever. Like, <laughs> don't touch any mushrooms, you know. And then I hunt with these guys, you know, you know, like James and like Dan that grew up down there, you know, and they just, they're like, oh, you know, pick these and pick those. And you go back like, oh, so good. So, I mean, it's new for yeah. me. So uh, a lot to learn yeah. there. Yeah, I've learned to make salads in the wild. You know, I'm just keep keep adding to my repertoire of things that I can eat, and it makes it exciting. And um, e- yeah. even when I come yeah. home, I want to add stuff from outside to my dinners. You know, uh, even if it's store bought stuff and the stuff that I found outside <clears> to <throat> to make that meal a little more exciting. Yeah, um, it's it's a ton yeah. of fun. And Larry, I know you're. I mean, you were talking about that sense thing, and I feel like. That's something that you don't hear talked about a lot, but I totally agree with that. You know, like, you know, we've been around for thousands and thousands of years living, you know, in the woods. And there's just those things that that take that connection or whatever that you can't explain, you know. And, and you know, just I, I know there's times when I'm hunting and I may be just crazy because I am, I guess. But there's times I feel like, you know. I don't know, I need to go this way or, or I feel like something's watching me or, or it's, you know, just out of no reason. Like I think there's going to be a deer over here, you know, and it, and it, 
and it's amazing how many times that that it happens, you know, and that's why I love like my I grew up in a family that hunts, so I don't get to hunt alone very often, but when I do, I really cherish those moments because I don't I'm not thinking about anything else, anybody else, anything that's going on. I'm just thinking about that one thing and and I just kind of let it let it lead me wherever, you know. When I have somebody with me, they'll always be like, "Oh, why are we going over here?" or what, you know, this or that. And you're like, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, I, I just think you're onto something there for sure. And I think that, yeah. like, I tell a lot of guys, uh, me, me and Bob have had this talk on the podcast a few times, and um, I imagine you would agree. Like, if you're just doing the weekend warrior thing, or you're hunting out of your truck. You don't, it ta- it's for me, it takes a few days. Like when I go on a, uh, you know, on a long extended hunt, after a couple of days, I really start to get a feel for what's going on. Um, you know, when I'm in the wild amongst wild things, I really feel like I'm, st- it takes a, a little, a few days, and then I'm really starting to get in tune with myself and how I feel and how the things around me feel. And I think, guys really owe to themselves to go on those two week uh um adventures where you can really get in tune to your surroundings yes i agree i agree um i you know i feel like i've really been fortunate to have um good mentors or to hunt with with other archers or um bow hunters that that I've learned from, you know, I can always learn some lessons or take a pearl of wisdom um, that can make me a, a better hunter or a better archer. When I first started hunting, my, my cousin was a great archer he, or a bow hunter. He, he'd always get his deer. He'd always get a, a mule deer, you know, every, every year we went out and his buddies that we hunted with, he, he goes, yep, Alan is just part animal. You know, he's got a skill set that, none of us could ever hope to have because, you know, he was just born with it. Um, and I had the luxury of hunting with him since I was his cousin. He was just taking me around and, and kind of just teaching me and, and, you know, showing me patterns. I, you know, I really enjoy hunting with my friend, Doug Borland. He's, he is just such a pure hunter, you know, and his, his skills are just so good. Um, we were hunting one year and, I had this little feather on the tip of my longbow and, and when we'd stop, I'd hold it up and kind of just check the wind. And, and he was just so good with his wind. He would always keep the wind in his advantage. Um, and, and he taught me to become more aware of, of the wind and, and to hunt um, with that in mind. Cause I wasn't that good at that point. And, um, and we stopped once and he, he said, yeah, you know, that's a good aid to have that feather, you know, and some people have little, um, bottles, a wind indicator, or even just those little downy things that you can throw up in the air and, and watch what the wind is doing, not only around you, but up above you or out in front of you. Um, but what he told me was really interesting. He said, it's good for you to use that, but, um, what you want to do is eventually not need an aid that you can just tell where the wind is, whether it's on, you know, against your skin, you know, you can feel on the, the, 
you know, the back of your neck, or you can look at the leaves or, um, or just look at the air and kind of just tell the wind. And, um, those kinds of things, whether it's, it's, you know, knowing and reading the wind or, you know, my sense of smell, you know, can I smell that elk or, um, or just hearing, you know, did you hear that bugle or did you hear that, that, um, stick crack? It's just those, that increased or heightened, um, senses that we, that we have that, that is really what makes us part animal. You know, that, that's what my cousin Alan had was, you know, just an increased sense. Um, when he was out there walking, he was like, you know, just pain mind and, and, and hearing those things rather than, yeah, when we, we come into the woods as a city slicker or, you know, someone that's not really in tuned, you know, we don't hear those things. We don't see those things. And, and yeah, I, I think you're right. The more time you spend in there, well, hopefully, you know, more time you spend in there that you'll tune into it, but just being aware of it, like, oh yeah, you know, I need to start paying more attention to that. And so yeah, I don't have those aids with me as much now. And I, um, but I was just actually hunting and fishing with um, Doug Borland and Don Thomas. And and Don reminded me that I was totally, my wind was totally wrong, you know, there in, in Hawaii. And, um, and I just kind of laughed. And he goes, yep, you were downwind there, son. <laughs> <laughs> Should have that feather on there, I guess. There, there's some. Those are some yeah, heavy. Yeah, I, need I needed my feather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those I was are some. Trying to fill this bag up with um, and have the wind blow into it, and I was just. I guess I was just totally facing the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't say anything till later, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're definitely you're hanging with some pretty heavy hitters there uh, in, mm. in, in, in that company, uh, Don Thomas and yeah, Doug Orland. Man, yeah, yeah, there's some stuff that can be learned from from those guys. Experience is tremendous. Yeah, I I marvel that I even ended up there. You know, I'm just a small town kid from California. I mean, that's already strike two. You know? <laughs> um, but I sometimes I wonder how did I get. You know, how did I get in these guys' company? But um, but it's been great. You know, I've enjoyed every moment. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, what's your what's your game of choice? Yeah, that's a good question. I I really feel like elk elk hunting is is my favorite thing to do, and and ironically, it's probably um, the the least type of hunting that I do just because I usually have to go out of state. And so it's just a bigger time commitment and expense um, wise, you know, it's, it's a tougher gig to do, you know, rather than just grab my gear and, and hop in my car. Have you, and, have you, you know, drawn a, a Cal, have you hunted a, a California elk? I know that that's like kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Have you had? Yeah, that I have not. I haven't. Um, and for years I put in for it, um, as a resident. And at one point I just said, forget it. It's just not, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> so I just stopped clicking that box, you know? And, um, so I have not put in for, for elk in California. And typically if I want to go hunt elk, it's, um, Colorado or Idaho. Um, 
I've gone up to Oregon and I really enjoy hunting up in Oregon. I actually hunted with Ron King up in the Wallowas, um, and Eagle Cap wilderness. And, um, hope I'm not giving away anything there, Ron, but, um, <laughs> anyways, that's, don't worry. That place is packed. Place. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. yeah. Um, but, and I love hunting there and we've had some great, you know, bugling and just interactions with elk up there. But, um, I, for some reason, Oregon just doesn't click for me, you know, as far as getting, getting on game and having shots. I, 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 I think I might, it just is in my cards or, you know, in the stars that, um, no, it's not just you. There's on that challenge. There's no game here. That's why. <laughs> uh, it, uh, we got mountain lions and bears uh, and uh, wolves. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. The ungulates are are, are uh, getting pretty, sure. They're hurting for sure. Pretty thinned oh, out. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, why don't why don't uh, you know TradQuest podcast? Uh, you know, we're definitely known for hunting stories. Um, maybe share one of your favorite elk hunting stories uh, from whatever state um, with us. We'd, you know, we'd love to to hear a good elk story, good elk yeah, hunting story. Yeah, I, you know, I've had some great hunts in Colorado, and um, in, even I was fortunate one year to draw Arizona, and it was just nonstop, you know, bugling, and I wasn't actually getting any sleep in Arizona because I was <laughs> always into elk. Bob, Bob's got a. Bob's got an Arizona uh, bull tag in his pocket this year. Oh my goodness, yeah. that's great! That is great. Um, but my one of my favorite hunts was in Idaho. Actually, it was um, let's see, Doug Borland and Lon Sharp um, had found an area on their own, um, and they their criteria was an area that um, didn't allow ATVs. Um, there were there were no guides that were guiding in that area and then the topography just looked good um so they went in there a year before me and just got into elk big time so then the next season they invited me to come along and and i said sure because you know i just love hunting with those guys and um so we went into this this area in idaho and it was elk rich i mean there were um elk bugling and there were not a lot of hunters there and it was a great hunt that way but what made it really special was that lon is the just his his elk hunting skills were a cut above and i could tell right from the get-go that he was just more aware um my bugling and understanding of of you know, moving on elk. I thought it was pretty good, but it was clear to me that it was very basic understanding. I mean, his, he, he had different bugles for different instances. He, it was almost like he spoke elk, you know, where I was just had like a locator call and, you know, a spike call and a mew. Um, he had like different mews and different spike calls and different bugles. And, um, but the main thing that he had that really was kind of a puzzle to me was I, you know, I was good at locating them and I could definitely close to, you know, 60 or 70 yards, but a lot of times those elk would lock up and, and then they would just move off. And I would think, well, 
geez, what happened? You know, why didn't it cross that meadow or why didn't it come through those trees so I could get into my effective range? But usually I was foiled by that. You know, I'd work an elk and pull it in, but then it would just kind of stop and then the the hunt would kind of unravel. Um, So I'd kind of gotten into that more aggressive style and typically I was a solo hunter, so I wasn't really setting up, you know, like a, a two hunter type scenario. Um, but I would just kind of just start running after them. <laughs> They'd move off me. You know, I would just start pursuing them. And then hopefully, you know, I occasionally I, everything would happen and I'd get a shot. But um, Lon spelled it out for me. He said, you know, Larry, you can't hunt that way because that's exactly what will happen. But what they'll, they'll do is they'll pull up to about 70 or you know, 70 or so yards, and then they'll stop and wait for you to show yourself. They'll come out and show themselves, but then they expect you as the bull that they, you know, they're interacting with to show yourself. And if you don't show, you know, if you don't come out and show your antlers, then they're going to just walk off and say, you know, this, there's something fishy here. Um, so anyways, the, the thing, the pearl that Lon gave me was, you know, this is how you close. This is how you, you know, you get within bow range. And basically his, I said, well, how do you do it, Lon? You know, and he kind of paused, like he wasn't, I, I think he wasn't sure if he wanted to tell me, you know, but um, he, he said, you hide behind a corner and when they walk around that corner, you mug them. I mean, that was his like little... <laughs> And you had to know, Lon, that, you know, that's kind of how he, he talked, um, or that's how he talks. But, but when he said that, I go, well, what's that mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there aren't any corners here, and I'm not going to mug anyone. Um, but he, he kind of spelled it out that, you know, you just have to have a setup where where the, the elk can't show himself yet that he knows that there's another elk there and he's got to make it over this rise or he's got to come around these trees and then he's going to show himself. But the the key is, is that you're right there. Um, So that was huge for me. I mean, it's like, wow, you know, I, I totally get that. And that having that card to play, you know, and being able to close like that would, it's just a huge, huge gift. You know, they, um, I don't know if you guys have had that, you know, that scenario happen or not, but um, uh, constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's elk hunting. Yeah, so um, yeah, you guys got into the elk pretty good on that trip. Um, I, I, uh, I know that uh, uh, you had an experience with the bull on, on that particular trip. If you wouldn't mind sharing it with us, it'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that was, it got to a point where, you know, Doug and Lon were really good hunters and I, I thought I could hold my own, but it was pretty clear after I think the, the second day that I was definitely, you know, third man on, you know, on a totem pole. It was, and, and it almost got to a point, it was kind of borderline, um, like getting disrespected, you know, like I was like the greenhorn. Um, I had certainly had plenty of elk hunts under my belt, but I felt like I was kind of like the junior hunter. <laughs> so when we were heading out, I think the night before Lon said, well, what's your plan? You know, what are you going to do? 
And he probably just wanted to know where I was headed so he wasn't walking on top of me. But I told him and um, he said, oh, that, you know, that sounds pretty good. So, so I woke up the next morning and headed up into this drainage and walked through these wallows. And um, it was just really special that morning because I'd come on this, this tree that this elk just pulled out of the ground and it was just laying there. And you could see where he was like raking up all the grass and, you know, digging his tips into the ground, um, you know, and just working the, the ground up. And it was just incredible. I felt like I was like I was in this just very elky area. It smelled like elk and but the extraordinary thing that happened was I walked a few steps more and I found this broken tip, just about three inches of a tine that this some elk, you know, when he was um in there tossing up all these trees and whatever, he must have like snapped off a tine and that was kind of cool, you know? And so I let out a locator bugle and, and this bull answered back up on this ridge and he wasn't that far. So I figured out my strategy, checked my wind and, and started moving up on him. But it seemed like we were just bugling up. He was on one ridge. I was up on another and we, he would bugle and I'd walk up and try to make some ground and I would bugle and all along as we're both moving up this ridge I'm just trying to figure out you know how how am I going to close and um so anyways I um I'm heading up this ridge and we're kind of bugling back and forth and we get about three quarters of the way up the ridge and he's holding it's like I kind of start feeling this energy like he's starting to become a little more irritated by me or, or whatever and so I, I know I've got to cross so I, I cross the ravine and head up onto his ridge and I'm just like totally in line with what Lon's saying I'm setting up my setup and I feel like he's close enough and so I, I start calling to him to pull him in and, you know, he's just letting out these roaring bugles and I'm feeling, okay, man, this is going to happen. He's going to come around these trees and up over this rise and I'm going to shoot him. And I think, you know, a, a, a few minutes go by and he bugles again and he's further away. And then I bugle back to him and he bugles again and he's further away. And I go, crap, you know, it, it is not happening. So I figure at least I want to just take a look at this bull and see how big he is. So I rush over my little setup and I get up into these lodgepole pines and it's just totally open. I mean, I can see like 200 yards. So I'm scanning the area and I see him move and I just see his butt. So I pull up my glasses and he's just this beautiful six point bull, but he's like a hundred yards off of me and he's moving up to the ridge line and, I'm thinking, man, this is just done. So I throw all caution to the wind. <laughs> I just bugle at him and I just start running towards him and um, he stops. And so I let out a few mules and I muse and I, you know, I'm in behind this tree now and he starts churning at about, I think I close to about 60 yards and I'm thinking, okay, well, he's way out of bow range, but 
he's kind of stopped and turned. I'm, I can at least get a good, um, a good look at him and just enjoy this bull that, you know, I've been bugling to for the last three hours. And, um, then the weirdest thing happened. Um, another hunter is bugling on the next drainage over and it actually is long. I can tell by his bugle and, um, the bu- the elk starts bugling back to him. And I thought, what is he doing? You know, this is my bull. And so he's talking to, to Lon and then I bugle a couple more times and he starts talking to me and he hops on this game trail and starts walking right at me. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is going to happen. And so he just wanders down this trail and at about 20 yards, he's actually circled around me. So now I've got no cover and he's, I'm just right in against this tree. And, um, at 20 yards, he, he's walking down this game trail. That's probably about 10 yards below me as it comes across me. Um, and he looks right at me and I go, damn it. You know, Oh, excuse me. Um, I'm busted. You know, he's, he's looking right at me. So I'm just staying motionless. And then he drops his head and starts feeding again. <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is, you know, just too much. And then he starts walking down the trail and at about 15 yards, he crosses some trees. So I, I've already got my arrow knocked, but I just get my bow in position. And I don't know how this happened. You know, the wind's swirling, but it just swirled just right. So as he got closer, the wind turned. Otherwise, I would have been busted. And he clears the trees. And at 10 yards, you know, I just, I draw back and, and shoot him. And, um, man, the shot felt good. Everything was just perfect. But the arrow starts flipping back at me. Like it, it hit him or it, it, at least I shot the arrow at him, but somehow it was, it had done something. I couldn't explain it, but it was actually coming back towards me end over end. And I thought, no way, I can't miss an elk at 10 yards. That's just crazy. <laughs> um, so the elk walks off, and I try to bugle, but my mouth is way too dry. I just kind of gurgle out something, but he just walks out. He walks out and over this rise, and he kind of wobbled a little bit, and he, he brushed against this big fir tree, and then he just disappeared out of sight. I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I missed an elk at 10 yards. You know, so I look and there's this little branch, like right in my shooting lane. And I thought, man, I must have clipped that branch. And and then the arrow flight, you know, it just tipped the arrow and maybe it just slapped the pull. Um, So, you know, the mind is just so... um, unmerciful you know it just thinks of the worst case scenario anyways i i kind of just try to calm down and there's just way too much adrenaline in me and you know at some point i finally get up and walk over to the arrow 
and it's got blood on it. And I go, oh, man, this is looking good. And it's busted off. The broadhead is missing. And um, so I walk over the rise, and the bull is just piled up, up into the <laughs> deadfall. Oh, man. And I thought, man, did it have a heart attack or what? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what had happened after I dressed that bull out and, and took a look at him, it had been a perfect shot through the bull. But I think when he took, when he took a step, his, you know, the force of the opposing leg, like pushed the arrow, it broke the arrow off and then pushed part of the shaft out back at me. And, um, you know, when I, um, pulled his heart out. The broadhead was right through his heart. So that was just, just too much. I mean, it was sensory overload. <laughs> We're talking about senses, <laughs> but you know, I, um, but it was a beautiful thing. You know, it was my first six point bull and, and then it just played out really well. And the whole, you know, hide behind a corner and mug them thing didn't work. <laughs> Either which way you but, mugged them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did everything totally wrong. I was in an open area. And I think in retrospect, I think Lon Bugling, um kind of just refocused his attention and, and, and then, and it did help. You know, at, at some point I thought it, it wasn't helping, but I think it did help and it helped kind of redirect his interest, you know, so instead of walking over the ridge, he, he decided, well, maybe I will just check this out. Yeah, it was so like, that's, my Idaho both, elk hunt. that's awesome. So it was like the bull thought he was kind of in between two bulls. And since you were the yeah. closer bull, he decided to come check you out first. It would be kind of my, yeah. um, yeah. idea of what was I going on. I think so. And I did have a few muse in there and I think those muse did help. I mean, I, he probably figured there are a few cows that um, that needed to be taken, you know, because <laughs> he, yeah. he was a satellite. He didn't have any other critters with him. So yeah, that is that's an, that is definitely that was an awesome story. It sounds like it was a great adventure. So um, yeah, we we uh, definitely uh, enjoyed having you on. Is there? Uh, Anything that, you know, in closing that you would like to add or something you might want to leave to uh, an up-and-coming traditional bow hunter um, as far as, you know, this conversation goes? Yeah, I, you know, I would just say um, to other bow hunters and um, and other archers to, to have an open mind. I mean, to to allow for possibilities. I mean, look for those pearls of wisdom that can, can make you better. I mean, I'm constantly in tune, you know, whether, whether it's reading a book or, or, or spending time with another um, hunter um, in the outdoors, it's, there's always something to be learned um, and something that can, you know, broaden our horizons or, or sharpen our skills. So, you know, I'm certainly not encouraging people to go backpacking without any food, but to just look at that, to look at um, what can make you better, you know, whether it's, um, you know, setting up your stand or your blind in the right place or, or just having um, a different approach. 
Um, I kind of look at, at it as having different cards in your deck that you can play because um, it's not always going to be as expected. So the, the more skill sets you have or, or the more um, woodsmanship or, or outdoor knowledge you have, it's just going to make you that much better. Yeah, what, what, absolutely. What, what I took from this conversation is just a constant reminder that that, you know, that old saying is less is more and that, um, stripping down can, can often be very beneficial, uh, increasing your outdoor experience and your skill set. And that in today's fast paced instant gratification era that we're living in, um, these younger guys are getting caught up in thinking that they need all the latest and greatest and have to have all these things in order to have these experiences in wild places amongst wild things. And, and I think that, you know, what I took away from talking with you is definitely that, uh, it's not, uh, it's not pertinent. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your, uh, time with us and, uh, it was awesome. Thank you, Larry. Great. Yeah. Like, likewise, I, I really think, um, what you guys are doing out there is, is good stuff and I'm happy to con- make a contribution if I can. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. Without you, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'd also like to thank Kafaro International. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Check us out on social media. Leave us a message. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. <laughs>